Scripture today is from 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verses 14 to 22. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please have a seat. Well, good morning. My name is Jonathan. I'm one of the elders here at Christ City Kitsilano, and it's my joy to be able to bring God's Word to you this morning. If you have your Bibles, please turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, uh, verses 14 through to 22, um, and uh, we'll be following along there. Before we do that, uh, let me pray. Father God, it's It's a joy to be able to gather with your people. It's a joy to be able to worship in your presence. And it's a joy to be able to partake of the bread and cup together with your people. Father, I need your help this morning. I pray that you would fill me with the Holy Spirit as I speak these words that you have prepared. Help me to prepare. Father, I pray also that you would open the hearts, the ears, and the eyes of your people this morning, that they might be edified as we look into your text, into, into your word, your scripture. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In one of his landmark books called You Are What You Love, The Spiritual Power of Habit, renowned philosopher James Smith proposes that to worship is to be human. He suggests that the central driving question that undergirds every human being is this. What do you want? He writes, quote, Our wants and longings and desires are at the core of our identity, the wellspring from which our actions and our behaviors flow. James Smith, of course, is not the first to propose this. <laughs> Ethicists and theologians long before him have proposed the same. In fact, Jesus asks this as he called his disciples in John 1, 38. What do you want? What are you seeking? It should not surprise us, really, that to worship is to be human, 
After all, God is the one who created us, and he created us to be worshiping beings. Everybody worships someone or something. And it's no wonder that the first commandment deals with worship. You shall have no other gods before me. The great commandment is like it, stated in the positive. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Every temptation that we face, every sin that we commit, it has at some level a worship component. Likewise, the Apostle Paul links what is common to man, that is temptations and trials, with the very notion of what we worship in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Notice the connection between the first part of chapter 10 that we heard about last week with the encouragement in verse 13 and the summary exhortation in verse 14, which we begin today. In the first part of chapter 10, Paul warns the Corinthians using examples from the Israelites in Exodus. You might recall that in verse 7, he gives the example of idolatry. In verse 8, he gives the example of sexual immorality. And in verse 9, he gives the example of putting Christ to the test. And then in verse 12, of course, he warns us. He says, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. And then we come to that pivotal famous verse in verse 13 that maybe you have memorized as a kid. That says this, no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. And then we arrive at today's passage. In verse 14, he sums it all up. He says, therefore. Now, just by the way, if you ever encounter the word therefore in the Bible, you need to remember what it's there for, right? So therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Flee from idolatry. Now, don't you find it interesting that he lists various categories of sin, and then he merely sums it all up with one word, idolatry, in verse 14. Paul has one main point in this passage. Flee from idolatry, lest you provoke the Lord, the jealousy of the Lord. Flee from idolatry, lest you provoke the jealousy of the Lord. My aim this morning is the same as Paul's. Dearly beloved, dear beloved brothers and sisters at Christ City Kitsilano, flee from idolatry, lest you provoke the jealousy of the Lord. Don't be presumptuous in your worship life. Now, we'll look at it through several angles this morning. First, we'll look at it through the angle of communion, worship and communion. We'll look at what is the Corinthians' main error. And second, we'll look at worship and demons, verses 19 through 21. We'll, we'll examine Paul's main argument. Why ought we flee? And what does it have to do with the Lord's Supper? And finally, we'll look at worship and the gospel in verse 22. What's the good news in all of this? You with me? Yeah, so let's dive in. Worship and communion, the Corinthians mean error. 
Now, Corinth was a small, bustling place full of temples to many Greek and Roman gods, small g-gods, like Aphrodite, Athena, Apollo, Demeter, Kore, Hera, Poseidon, Asclepios. Just to give you a taste, one could visit, for example, the temple of Asclepios, the god of healing, where you could go and buy a terracotta model by a head, a hand, a, a foot, ear, or any body part in order to be healed of your disease. Other temples had food courts, banquet halls where business could be conducted, where you could host a party, take various mind-altering drugs, have your dreams interpreted. There were even temples where you could go and have sex with the priests and priestesses as part of an act of worship. Perhaps this is where we get the word aphrodisiac from. Importantly, these temples were so part of the Corinthian culture and so commonplace that they formed much of the collective habits of that society. It's well known, for instance, that merchants and soldiers passing through Corinth would end up squandering their money because of its lavish smokers board, shall we say, of temples. So much so that a common proverb at the time was this. Not for every man is the voyage to Corinthos. In our Western postmodern equivalent, we ought not to think of the local Buddhist temple or the local Muslim mosque, but rather something as mundane as, say, the local shopping mall, the local restaurant, the coffee shop, the bar, the strip club, or the sports stadium. It's not to even mention the online equivalents like the local meal delivery service, the common online retailer, online entertainment. You see, the, the Corinthians' main error was that they underestimated the idolatrous significance of their everyday habits. Habits which engaged the senses, while at the same time overestimating the power of the Lord's Supper to make them immune to the destructive effects of this idolatry. It was commonplace, for instance, to honor pagan gods in Greek religious ceremonies by drinking small cups of wine poured out for them. And likewise, it was commonplace to eat meat offered at these temples. And yet what they did not realize was that their everyday actions... In their everyday actions, they were provoking the Lord to jealousy. They thought that because they participated in the fellowship of the communion and partook of the Lord's Supper, that it would act sort of like a vaccine of, to any ill effects of participating in pagan worship. And Paul says that they have missed the point. They've missed the point. In our salvation, we've been united with, with Christ, body and soul. The goal, the goal of our salvation is our corporate union with God through Jesus. And the Lord's Supper, also known as communion, literally the participation in the union, is an act of worship that reminds us simultaneously of the union-enabling event of the past, and it looks forward to our forever union with Christ. 
We are to think of both Christ as the Passover lamb at the Last Supper in Luke 22 and being with Christ at the Marriage Supper in Revelation 19. It's a physical, worshipful, fleshly reminder that we are his and that he is ours and that one day we will be reunited with him. Worship is communion. Communion is worship. Eating and drinking in Christian practice is not merely just eating and drinking. It's representative of our whole body worship and communion with God through Jesus by his Holy Spirit. Which begs the question, how often do you worship God with all your being, body and soul? Or all of your habitual senses submitted to him in deep communion? This language, by the way, is not just mystic. It's very much part of what it means to be one of God's people. For instance, Paul compares the Corinthian practices to that of ancient Israel in verse 18. In verse 18, he writes, it it literally says this, consider Israel according to the flesh. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? Likewise, consider the exhortation of the psalmist David in Psalm 34, verse 8, when he asks us to taste and to see that the Lord is good. Early Christians understood the significance of this fellowship. One tangible example that really strikes at my heart is the account written in Luke 24, verses 15 to 33. Jesus, having just resurrected, was walking with two people incognito on the road to Emmaus. And it says in verse 15 that Jesus himself drew near. He went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. What does it say later? Later, it says he stayed with them and he broke bread with them. And when he broke bread, their eyes were opened, it says in verse 31, and they recognized him. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us when he talked to us on the road while he opened to us the scriptures? Likewise, in Acts 2, 42 through 47, we read of the devotion of the early believers, amongst other things, to the breaking of bread. You see, the early Christians understood the significance of something as simple as breaking bread and their common faith in Christ. And Paul is reminding them, the Corinthians, of this. Verse 16, the cup of blessing that we bless. Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break. Is it not a participation or communion in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. You see, when we take the cup, we are participating in the benefits of Christ's blood. We are remembering that his blood was costly, that it secured for believers the forgiveness of sins by paying the price for our sin. 
he shed blood, so we wouldn't. Our partaking is a tangible reminder of this deep cost, that it was Jesus, it was to Jesus, our acceptance of his forgiveness and our participation in his fellowship. Similarly, we are reminded of Christ's body given to us in his death. We are reminded of what the body signified, of his identification with us as human beings, of his suffering, but also of his being made whole and perfect through suffering. This body reminds us that one day we will be with him in our resurrected bodies, just as he was raised. But verse 17 also reminds us one important aspect, that all who believe in him, regardless of culture, of race, of social economic status, of age, are invited to participate. In a few minutes, we'll have, of course, our communion celebration. And all of you, regardless of your salary, of your race, of your social economic status, of your age, will be invited to participate if you are a believer in Jesus Christ. There is unity and solidarity in eating the one loaf of bread together. And so you understand that when the Corinthians were so nonchalantly participating at the tables of their local temples, that it was an affront. It was like spitting in the face of Jesus Christ. Of, it was an affront to the professed union that they had that they have with Jesus Christ. You know, sometimes we look at these passages as moderns and we look at it with a bit of theological smugness, don't we? I, I don't know about you, but as if, you know, we can sort of know better. For instance, how often have you read the account of the Israelites grumbling in the desert, making a golden calf? And maybe you wouldn't say this out loud, but you're thinking, like, how stupid can they be? I would never do that. Or we look upon the pagan worship of the Corinthians and think, how, how uncivilized. We moderns know better. We wouldn't go and worship at pagan temples. And this is, after all, how our postmodern society would like us to think. And yet we commit the same error. We too underestimate the idolatrous significance of our everyday habits while at the same time we overestimate the power of going through our Sunday liturgy, particularly the Lord's Supper, and any other ordinance like baptism to make us immune to the destructive effects of our idolatry. In a very eye-opening chapter in Smith's book, he asks his readers to engage in a thought exercise to recognize rival liturgies, rival orders of service. He gives the example of a modern-day shopping mall. I want you to picture in your head the most glorious shopping mall that you can think of. Consider the grandiose entries of these buildings, reminiscent of the colonnades of temples and arches of cathedrals. The design of the interior draws both seekers and the faithful to the enclosed interior spaces with ceiling arched windows that open to the sky. 
stepping foot into one of these temples, we sense the vertical openness. Yet at the same time, we're, we're shut off from the outside world. We're shut off from the clamor and the distractions of that mundane, horizontal world. People going about their shopping often forget about the troubles that they have in life or about the argument that they just had with their spouse. Present also at the mall are the icons. Yet instead of stained glass windows depicting scenes of the resurrection of Jesus Christ or the Rose of Sharon, consider the statues and the mannequins dressed to perfection, perfectly posed, or the shiny iPhones to embody the concrete three-dimensional image of the good life. The faithful enter. They're invited to enter into an act of worship. Perhaps by the lingering aroma of the corner Starbucks, strategically situated at the corner of the mall. This is Vancouver, so let's rewind that a bit. Maybe Maxim's Bakery. We smell that fresh coconut bun. We're invited to taste and see. And soon we are welcomed by one who offers to shepherd us through the experience. We've come expectant, knowing that something that we're looking for must be here. We're not quite sure what that is, but it must be here. And soon after several hours of meditation amongst the sales racks, we find it. We found just the one at 40% off too. And now the emotions, delight, hallelujah. And so we take this holy object that we found and we proceed to the altar, object in hand, where a priest who presides over this consummating transaction gives us a smile. We're invited to give and to receive. And so we, well, it's modern day, so we take our phone out. We make our sacrifice, tap. We leave our donation. And we get, in return, something tangible, wrapped in colors and symbols of the temple and of the season. The priest releases us with a benediction. Thank you for shopping with us. Have a great day. And we're off. Now, <laughs> some of you may raise the objection. Come on now, Jonathan. Do you really think that the architects of Pacific Center downtown or of Metropolis in Metrotown really thought that they were building a temple? Of course not. And yet this is the kind, this is exactly Smith's point. We build things and we invite people to participate in things that we love. As the old adage says, if we build it, they will come. So Smith encourages us to develop liturgical lenses, to examine our cultural habits, 
our communal habits as a society. Consider how we might participate in them. Consider how we are being formed by them. His point is that we don't think our way into things like consumerism. We don't think our way into pagan practices. Rather, we are formed by cultural practices into nothing less than secular liturgies propped up unwittingly by a rival version of the kingdom and being discipled in what and how to love. And yet week in, week out, we come on Sundays to gather with his church to partake in his Lord's Supper failing to realize the incongruity. Coming back to the text, having made the argument that their everyday habits matter, Paul then outlines his main arguments why such practices are so problematic. And so let's consider verses 19 through to 21 as we look at our second point, worship and demons. Paul's main argument, verses 19 through 21. What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. In other words, while idols themselves are nothing, the spiritual forces behind those idols, namely demons, are not. They are in opposition to God. And one cannot be claimed to be a follower of Jesus Christ, partaking the bread and the cup, and at the same time be participants with the demonic. Such activity will provoke the Lord to jealousy. The image that Paul is trying to convey here is one of warfare. He's saying that just as there is spiritual significance behind the physical elements of the bread, of the cup, and of fellowship, so too there is demonic significance behind physical idols. And so don't be presumptuous in your worship life. Don't think that you can just casually worship. You can casually practice things that our society deems acceptable just like some casually have sex. Just like the sexual union unites you to the one you have sex with and away from Jesus Christ. So your habits of casual worship in your city unite you to demons and draw you away from the exclusive worship appropriate for those who have been united with Jesus Christ. While the idolatry of the Corinthian society was arguably more overt and visible. Ours is not, and perhaps all the more dangerous. This is why we need to train ourselves to recognize these rival liturgies. I walked you through an example of them all, but you can do that with nearly anything else in our society. Our modern hubris is that we think that our idolatry is somehow demonless. 
that we tend to characterize sins as mere decisions. But that is actually not the true mechanics of temptations. Temptations are not merely an individual, uh, sorry, an individual intellectual reality. That is a conscious choice to pursue sin or not. We're not just thinking creatures. We are creatures of habit. We're creatures of habit that are shaped and formed by competing visions of what is true, good, and beautiful. And yet the Bible says that there's only one definition of true, good, and beautiful, and that is abundant life in Jesus Christ, who is jealous for our love and our affections. And so temptations are not just bad ideas or wrong decisions. They are often wrongly ordered habits. They are visible manifestations of the unseen demonic war behind the scenes. You see, sins are not just discrete or bad decisions. They reflect vices. We often identify, especially in our circles, the idols of the heart. We make idolatry an intellectual or a heart matter, but we neglect the Bible's teaching that there is a spiritual battle raging for the souls of mankind. And this war rages on in the heavenly places, in the hearts of every believer, and in the fellowship of his church. Our false worship, even today, is spiritual, it's demonic, and it leads us away from life in God individually and corporately. Unfortunately, these days, the imagery of war is not difficult to imagine. As you know, there is a physical war raging in our world today, the likes of which we have not seen since the Second World War. But perhaps providentially, it's visual images of devastation provide a stark reminder of the realities of our spiritual life. Think for a moment the images of a war-torn, besieged city, ravaged by marks of sin, of idolatrous worship, and the trials of life. And as we picture this in our minds, we can think of the grievous results of that idolatry. You see, Paul's point in verses 16 to 17 is that idolatry compromises our communion with God and our communion with one another. We've seen throughout this letter to the Corinthians how that disunity has played out, haven't we? The Corinthians faced deep division. They passed over one another's needs as they only paid attention to their own desires. They fought for status and power and strength for themselves to the hurt of others and the church. They committed and tolerated gross sexual immorality that destroyed families and the integrity of their community. They experienced fierce competition with one another. They were not characterized 
by love and righteousness and laying down their lives for the good of others. Now all of this would be really bad news if we were left to our own devices. With all the talk of demons behind the idolatry, we can get the wrong impression that we ought to be afraid of what demons can do to us. We can get the impression that the focus of our fight must be the slaying of these demons, or that somehow by our own efforts, let's say of never eating meat again or never setting foot in the mall again, we must defend against the attacks of the enemy. Now, just to be really, really clear, I am not saying that you should never set foot in a mall again or never eat meat. Please do not hear me say that. In fact, Paul gets into this, the nitty-gritty of the practical implications in the next passage. So stay tuned for next week's sermon where Brandt will get to tease out all the practical applications. But just a short preview. The question you ought to be asking is not how far, how far you can go. The question you ought to be asking is what motivates me in the first place? In fact, often my, my wife asks that of me. And sometimes it's, it's a little bit annoying to be a biblical counselor married to one who also studies biblical counseling. <laughs> it's like, shut up. <laughs> but it's a really good question because it's a very convicting question, isn't it? What, what mo motivates me? Um, coming back to the point, contrary to the emphasis placed by some Christians, the focus here is not on what demons can do to us or how we might slay them. Rather, the focus is on how we might be provoking the Lord to jealousy in our presumptuous habits. And so our third point is worship in the gospel. Notice how Paul argues this whole passage, notice how Paul argues at the end. He says in verse 22, Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Now this verse tells us two things. First, of course, it's a warning that can be coupled with the command in verse 14 to flee from idolatry. But embedded in this warning is the good news of the gospel. Do you see it? We are not stronger than him. And God is a zealous God who loves his people so much that he has already made a way. He woos us to fellowship with him. You see, Christ has already won the victory over demons. He's done that on the cross. He has demonstrated time and again of his power over them. If you read the Gospels, you will see him cast out demons in his name. Just last week, we heard of Billy's incredible testimony but it's not just her testimony or, or, or testimonies like hers that proves Christ's victory. His resurrection displays it. His word proclaims it. Ephesians 1.21 says this, it proclaims that God in raising Jesus from the dead placed him far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. Not only has he won the victory, he has united us with him so that we too might be victorious in the day-to-day -day battle against idolatry. 
Let's return for a minute back to the imagery of war in that besieged city. Think of a liberated people paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ and given safe passage in Christ. Why, why would you stay and fraternize with the enemy? You who were once marred by sin and temptations, take the way of escape. Take it. Take the way of escape. Flee from idolatry. And that way of escape is none other than Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus rules over all. And so, yes, while it is true that our battle is against the spiritual forces in the heavenly places, we battle in the strength, in the strength of and filled with the spirit of the one who is Lord of all, who has all authority in heaven and on earth, and under whose feet all things have been placed in, subject, in subjection. Furthermore, Jesus has given us everything that we need to experience true life, the true, good, and beautiful life. He's given us all that we need in him. We don't have to be enslaved to the enemy's lies. His way of escape includes not only a paved way, but his very enduring presence. So, my dear friends, brothers and sisters, repent, flee from idolatry, and trust the one who is victorious. You see, Jesus has revealed the glory of God to us so that we are drawn to him in worship and away from our compromising spiritual adultery. God is a jealous God, but Jesus is an incomparably beautiful Savior. We don't need to go to another God for our comfort. All we need, we have in Christ. In just a moment, we, after I pray, we will respond in several ways as part of our Sunday liturgy. We will, of course, be responding in song. We'll, we'll be responding through prayer at the cross. If you need prayer, you're welcome to come down here. And some people will be happy to pray with you. Uh, we'll be responding through our giving at the Connect table. If this is your regular church, we encourage you to give. If you're a visitor, that's not for you. And of course, we'll be responding by partaking the Lord's Supper together. And as you partake, I want you to think of how God woos us to himself by inviting us to partake in this victory that he has already won. Consider as you take the elements, the bread and the cup, consider the significance of the body of Christ given for you and his blood shed for you. And as we partake together, consider the union of Christ 
that we share. But at the same time, consider the thrust of this text. 1 Corinthians 10, 14 through 22, is really about what you do when you are not at the Lord's Supper. When you face the threat of idolatry and these rival liturgies in your life. And so I pray, let not the experience with Christ at the Lord's Supper be profaned this week by your sitting down at the Feast of Idols. What are you seeking at your very core? You know what those are in your life. And so in the name of Jesus Christ, I exhort you, flee from idolatry this week. Let us pray. Father God, this is both a a convicting and an encouraging passage. It's convicting because we look at our society, we look at the ways we interact with our culture and our society, and we realize that there are so many things that tempt us to idolatry. Our hearts are constantly pulled into rival, contrasting ideas of what is true, good, and beautiful. And yet, your Bible says that in you alone, in Jesus alone, is the abundant, eternal life. You are the definition of what is true, good, and beautiful. The citizens of your kingdom, may we be, may we live into that. May we be people who reject and flee from idolatry and cling on to you. Oh, Father, have mercy on us. May we be people that do not provoke you to jealousy. Thank you for what you've done on the cross. Thank you that as we partake in the Lord's Supper, we are reminded deeply of our relationship with you, of your atoning sacrifice for us, and of the banquet that is to come when we will feast with you. Renew us afresh this week. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.